0: What's up, guys? Welcome to Culver's Podcast with your host, Matt Srotrich, and myself, Peter Fendura. This is a podcast where we tackle current health news and hot nurse topics, one conversation at a time. How's it going, guys?
1: Emilio, say hello. So we have a special guest on today.
2: Hey, what's up, y'all? How you doing? Good to be here. It's really good to be here, actually.
1: So, guys, for those that are new, thank you for listening. This is a podcast, Nursing One. We bring on random guests. We talk about whole different other topics. If you're new or if you're returning, don't forget to smash the five stars. Uh, Shout out to, what's his name? Tanner. He gave us a really cool review. We got a pretty cool
0: Spotify uh, review. Name was Tanner. Do you remember what what he said on it?
1: He just says that he's vibing with the podcast. He listens to on his way to some kind of trip that he had. So shout out to that. He takes road trips with us. So thank you, Tanner, for
0: allowing us to be on your road trip. And keep
1: it up, man. And today, special guest, um, he is a nurse in the Bay Area, in the ER. He's been in healthcare for over 16 years. Shout out to that because we're only at four. He's passionate about nursing, and he's willing to have conversations that are going to promote a healing environment. So please welcome Emilio
2: Vigil. Hey, thanks, y'all. Vigil, Emilio Vigil. Yeah, just like that. It's all good, man. It's all good. Hey, it'd be like that, though, when you're trying to pronounce patient names. You know, I push them all the time. Bro, especially like in the ER when you go out from the back and you come in and there's like 60 people in the waiting room. I'm like, I'm trying to get all the Mr. Good. You know what I mean? Like you just can't catch it. Uh, you know, you do your best, but it's good to be here. Thank you, Cup of Nurses. I've been following y'all on Instagram for a while now. Appreciate you guys. I'm freaking proud of you guys. Two male critical care nurses. You're content rich. You're legit. I appreciate you guys. As y'all, for those who are listening, I was just finding out a little bit about these two right here, and they both have names of apostles. I don't know how that happened. <laughs> Polish parents, strong Catholic background. Uh, but knowing you guys knew each other since you were kids, that's encouraging. That's good. That's, that's, that's family right there staying together. So I can appreciate that. It's good to be yeah. here.
0: Yeah, dude, thanks for joining us, man. Like me and Matt know each other for a while. You know, like you build these rich relationships with, with people and you just don't know if how long you're going to stay friends for or, you know, like, like me and Matt, friends for, from the, since the first grade. And ever since then,
1: it's been like, what, 25 years now? some shit. I mean, 25 minus like four, because I was unaware of what ha- what was going on during that time. We'll just throw it on there. We'll just throw it on there. Um, So it's kind of funny that you brought up where you're kind of forgetting names, because I do that shit all the time where mm-hmm. I don't know my patient's name sometimes because I'm just stressed out. So I have a little, you know, my little cheat sheet of notes. And I look and I'm like, um, hey, you know, Susie Q or whatever. Sometimes I have to look on the board. Some, ner- some nurses don't update the board. I'm just like, oh man, it's awkward right now. But I'm gonna call you Mrs., honey, sweetie, sir, and that all works, you know? Yeah, yeah, I just, yeah, I just say boss and miss all the time. Because yeah. sometimes for
0: me, it, it sucks, because if you have like two patients with like a similar last name, like like Shay and Shears, like I always make get them flipped. Like when I walk into the room, I'm always like, hey, Mr. Shears, but it's like, oh, I am miss Shea. Oh, sorry, sorry, Miss Shea, my bad. You know, it's not gonna happen again.
2: My yeah, bad. absolutely. I've learned from the nurses back South. I mean, you know, especially in California, you get a lot of nurses from back South. The Southern nurses will baby up anything to be like all right baby this all right we're gonna roll now but i'm like that person's your same age why are you babying this? you know what i mean so that baby's just like honey you know miss or you know you'll get through somehow
0: so you were a nurse in the southern states before it's not just uh, san diego or
2: um, bars, san
0: francisco
2: no i'm ju- I, I mean just in the sense like what you learned from all of the nurses coming from back south into the bay area mm. um you know which is pretty common
0: okay but for your nursing career have you just did the bay area or have you been anywhere else
2: the Bay area and then the outskirts of the Bay area going into areas like are you familiar with like Monterey and Salinas area? Um, which it's funny, even how, with how the Bay Area, uh, what it encompasses, you're going to hit people, some towns that are just migrant towns and you have people from over the border where they, my first nursing job, they only spoke Spanish. About 60% of the patient population only spoke Spanish. I look super Latin in the face. So you would Yo. think that I spoke fluent Spanish. Um, so, you know, and it's what you learn on in these different spaces. Um, my assessment of Spanish had to get good real quick, you know, which I, I'm, I'm of, of the firm belief to learn whatever you can learn from nurses from all over the world. That's the amazing thing about this job. You gonna meet nurses from all over the entire freaking globe. I think it's incredible,
0: especially the Bay Area, man. Like when we went to Oakland. Like I saw so much like ethnicity, so much different nationalities that you don't see here because in Chicago, it's predominantly like Eastern European, uh, just kind of more of the European descent. But in Oakland, you had Filipinos, you had people from like different islands. And it was was cool to see compared to here where it's typically like, you know, African-American or typical white male Caucasian compared to all these Asian, Asian descents. But it's cool that you brought up Spanish because that's the one thing I regret in high school and college is to not putting my like a full effort into Spanish classes. Cause I took Spanish for, for like four years and I only thing I know is like, me gusta, you know, football and saca la basura, which is take out the trash, you know, which is like completely, completely pointless. This is a good time to admit that you were
1: cheating on your tests. I was with the Spanish girls, Latinas, you know.
2: Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, I see it, I see it.
1: <laughs> so Amelia, so, can you tell us a little about yourself, like background, just for someone that has no idea who you are, just to kind of paint a small picture before we kind of dive into topics?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was actually born and raised here in the Bay Area. Um, I knew, man, when I was a kid, and I want to contribute. My desire to get into emergency medicine from the old. Did y'all ever watch the old um, ER?
0: I did not. I, I watched Mash. You know, what Mash is okay. It's like an old army army show. Nothing to do with nursing at all. <laughs>
2: oh yeah, <it's laughs> zero right? Yeah, <laughs> it's okay. I'm sure it's relevant. It's <laughs> Um, Nah, bro. The old ER was like Grey's Anatomy on crack. It was legit emergency medicine with all of the the right drama in it. And even as a kid, like I would watch it and it would just be these insane, you know, uh, cases that came in, but something about it sparked something in me. And even as a child, you know, when I would meet nurses or physicians, something about them when I interacted with them had something special for me. I would listen more intently, even though I didn't really understand what nursing was, what medicine was. I knew that when I heard it, it had a ring to me. Like if it was a coat, I would want to put it on. I wanted to be very close to it. And um, I remember I started out right out of high school in genetics and an internship, hopped into the pharmacy, worked in the pharmacy for a couple of years, physical therapy. Most of my time in healthcare was spent um, in physical therapy, um, specifically most of the time in the ICU, actually. And, um, and that was an incredible job because I remember one patient said, um, the physician saved my life, but physical therapy team brought me back to life. And you learn a lot about the human condition, the human experience. <clears throat> excuse me, um, from people who are uh, can't do nothing for themselves. Their 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 bodies have completely given up. Um, and I know y'all know more about that than than most. Um, and then finally transitioned into emergency room via um, the tech role, which has been one of my favorite roles thus far. And now I've been in ER for about five years now, and now uh, now a nurse.
1: And how is it being like an ER nurse? Because from my understanding, I've never done it. I've worked maybe one shift and I was like a, a resource nurse in the ER. So I'm mm-hmm. just helping other nurses do things, just start an IV. How does it differ when it comes to pace, when it comes to other units? Why do you personally like it? I know it's just like a fast paced position, correct?
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll start that question with, there are two ways typically to enter into an emergency room um, for the start of shift and in the ERs that I've worked in, it has been the same across um, all three of them. Um, You can enter in through the front, which is where the patients um, step in and you'll meet the triage team in that area. And upon the first three seconds of entering into the emergency room, you already know, and I've only worked night shift and evening shift. So typically this is true for most of those shifts. By the time that you enter in, you will know how your shift is gonna go for the next eight, 10, 12, 16 hours, depending on what's in that waiting room within the first three seconds, the level of anxiety, the level of human suffering, the level of impatience, the level of fear, all of that energetic tone will hit you at that door. And you already know what tools you have to reach for. You already know what pace that you have to get into. And typically that first couple moments is just blinders because you're not ready to, really you're not ready to help anybody. You need to get settled and get in your right head. Um, The other entrance is through the ambulance bay. And once again, you already kind of have an idea of how shift is going to go when you pull up and you see there's two ambulances in the ambulance bay, there's three ambulances in the ambulance bay, and you get in and the code rooms will be most proximal to the ambulance bay. Convenient, right? And I always take a quick peek in the code rooms. And depending on what you see in there, once again, you know how it's going to go down. Is someone being intubated? Is CPR in progress? Is nobody in there? Is an elder battling sepsis and pressures are, you know, tanking? That sort of thing. And... I find it a good ER sensibility that when you get into work, you find somebody, and it can really be anybody, but it is better if it's a more positive person. If you go straight to them as soon as you get to shift, straight up to them and you go right up to their face and look them in the eye and you say, good morning, good evening. And this is a way to have a a nonverbal pact internally that you are gonna give the shift your willingness that you're going to bring as much joy, you're going to be as engaged and dynamic as you were called to be. And you start that off in the beginning when you say good morning or good evening um, to your fellow nurses, because you're about to do this thing together, certainly.
0: I love that, man. That's wow. That's like, that kind of hit me a little bit, you know, maybe me feel kind of twinkly on, on, on the inside, like just uh, like acknowledging somebody like your coworker, your peer. Just with like a good morning how are you you know good afternoon it just it goes that far so yeah. simple and you yeah have, you have like a almost like
1: a contract and a bond after that
2: absolutely absolutely That's exactly what it is
1: I, I like how you bring that up when it's creating that environment but the prevalence is when you walk into a shift and say something like that and you have the best intention correct mm-hmm. what ends i feel like there's always negative nancy's there's always a the debbie downers this shift sucks this is going on and they're just in a state of anxiety, just like already like giving you that energy into you, into the start of your shift. And I hate that. And I never try to do that. Maybe how was your shift? It was good. And I'll say this, this has happened, but overall it was good. I never tried to wish bad upon a nurse like that. And I feel like that happens far too often, man. Mm -hmm.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. I feel like what works best. If you meet somebody like that, it's like
0: negative, like, like that's, you could feel that kind of negative, negative energy coming out. Just ask them, like, Hey, like, or if they bring up, yeah, my shift was shitty. Well, ask them, How, why was your shift shitty? Or if they say, hey, my, the first hour was, was so busy. Like, ask, why was it busy? Uh, that way they feel like you're acknowledging their issue, and it kind of gives you like an idea in the back of your mind. Maybe they had to do a bunch of checks because they have four insulin trips, and they're literally in and out of the rooms. So that's going to put a thought in the back of your head. Hey, maybe I have a few minutes here and there. Maybe I should just check someone's AccuCheck for them. And sometimes I found
2: that they think that their day was bad, and they the saying engaging them in the beginning almost startles them out of that because they're almost as nurses we have an empathic nature and we can pick up the the energy of people around us, especially people who are dying. And you almost sometimes I've encountered nurses like that, and it's just good morning. What are you doing? What are you doing? You know, just kind of playing with them. and they're ready to play. They're ready to be that dynamic nurse, but they just it's almost like a thought got in front of their vision that was a negative thought and they couldn't shake it. Exactly, that's a good point.
1: I like how you mentioned that and you're very, very self-aware. I actually have a question to how did you become that and how did you start noticing? Was it prior to nursing or being an ER tech? But what I wanted to bring up um, is like neuroplasticity, right? So nurses develop this habit of, let's just say, starting off the shift bad or being negative. And I feel like you build a program and build a routine, especially not switching jobs. And as soon as you enter work, you already get into that state of mind because your your mind and your body are constantly talking. So when you get into work, your body is already picking up on emotions your mind is telling you subconsciously, man, because it's pattern recognition, just like you say.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. It is. And it's subtle work. It's really, really subtle work. This is not something that you do like today. I'm going to be mindful. You know, that's not how it works. It's very subtle work um, for me. I was raised in very spiritual environments where you strive to create healing spaces. And even though I'm not a very religious por- person anymore, um, I've retained that sort of spirituality. I brought it with me into my practice. And it, it's it's day after day, it's year after year. It's your entire career of becoming conscious. I've done this thing for 16 years now. And even though I'm a somewhat newer nurse, I have always found myself gravitating towards people who still love doing it. I've been in interviews where I remember I was in an interview a while back and all the cool, we did all the regular questions. We went through the whole thing and I looked the manager right in the eye and I said, I have a question for you. I said, do you still love it? And the way I swear she had a stroke. I was like maybe light bells or something. And she you know she said you know some days some days and it comes from the top and it flows down but binding and 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 fortifying relationships with people who still love it and have found really good ways to process this sort of energy and stress um on the work site is is vital and you can move out from there
1: how do you personally like deal with like stress and anxiety when it comes to er cuz you seem to have i'm sure you cope the proper way i'm sure everybody has their bad coping mechanisms where they have to have a beer or a smoke or video games, or whatever women do shop. Let's just say I want to be mindful of everyone. But what do you do, for example, when it comes to coping or after a long day or prior to your shift?
2: Mm-hmm. There's three things that I find very important to do. And it's funny that you say smoke. I remember in my first nursing job, um, there were times I would step out and I would have a cigarette. And I don't even smoke cigarettes, you know. Um, but I would go and have a cigarette with the charge charge nurse. And we'd be Talking, you know, talking shit, and just just having a blast out there smoking our cigarettes. And one day, as I was smoking, I did a deep inhale, and I realized I didn't want to smoke. I only wanted to breathe. And it was that moment of breathing—the inhale inhalation, the exhalation of the smoking—that I realized, oh, I really just wanted the change of state. And breath work is so significant. I do box breathing. I do stop stoplight breathing, which is very similar to box breathing. If you're, are you guys familiar with that?
0: No, I'm not. Can you go over
2: that with us? Certainly. So, um, box breathing or stoplight breathing, imagine that you're on a racetrack and there's a stoplight at each end of the racetrack. As you're going up the racetrack, you're inhaling for three seconds. You're holding at the stoplight for three seconds. You're exhaling for three seconds. You're holding for three seconds. And it's at these stoplights that you're getting your power back, that you're getting your control back in that moment. Because you, you, the body will, will the CNS, the, everything is just going. But when you are consciously holding, you're taking a little bit of control back. And you can, I found myself doing that in codes. Because, I, I mean, I remember my initial code. I was, I was a mess. You know, the, the body can't control, the, especially if for an empath, the body can't control that wave of overwhelming fear and anxiety and suffering. It can't do that. So you have to find ways of speaking peace over your body speaking peace into your body in these moments. In the ER when you coin it organized chaos, the organized part needs to be you (laughs) because it's not gonna be them, certainly. Um, The other thing is cultivating really the work relationships is one of the key ways of surviving in the emergency room. And I'm sure even in the ICU, is those moments of stress relief when you're going down the hall and you're cracking up with your coworkers, or you have, uh, 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 you're in the med room and you're getting therapy? Lord Jesus, if they ever mic the med room, <laughs> you know what I'm yeah. saying? Because all our therapy happens there. Sometimes we need to go in there and be like this, mother You know what I'm saying? It's just a release, and you cannot do that if you do not have a relationship established with those other healers, those other nurses, physicians, techs, lab. That's your family. And if you don't have that relationship with them, you can't de-stress. The third thing I would say is solitude. It's the work that happens in your quiet space. And when you think about it, it's almost like when you plug in your iPhone when it's completely depleted um, and you're trying to watch YouTube and you're trying to be on Facebook when it's plugged in, it's not going to charge the same way from when you just leave it in solitude and let it do its thing, you need to be dynamically in solitude. You need to be conscious so that you can fill up and be ready to pour out when you step into a space as chaotic as, as the emergency room. Mm-hmm. You have a
0: very beautiful way of articulating this. Like a lot of nurses, nurses miss this. And I, I feel like if you're like what the solitude um, thing you were saying is I feel mm-hmm. like you you can't love or take care of anybody else if you're not going to love and take care of yourself. Like you, you can't be alone mm-hmm. by yourself. Mm-hmm. I don't think you shouldn't be able to be with anybody else. Like you got to first, first learn what moves you and kind of how to take, how to take care of yourself before you kind of could step into someone else's life.
1: And just to give you guys a perspective, both of you guys, actually, because I'm travel nursing, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't have that same dynamic at work that you guys have when it comes to having teammates. Like I can't go vent two strangers that are staff nurses it's just not the same you got me man i mean yeah i could text you and <laughs> <laughs> i actually do that sometimes I'm like fuck bro i'm about to get this train wreck man <laughs> um, but, but yeah I, I do miss that man i have my awesome co-workers like like jess and rachel i remember back in the day when i was at like range like it was fun man like you get to talk shit laugh around bedroom of course vent and I just don't have anybody. And some, but you know what?
2: Uh, some of my favorite people that I've encountered in this work have been travel nurses. And the short time that you have with them, it's almost like a non-committal love. Like you just step into friendship because of the commonality of nursing. And it's just when you find your tribe, you're gonna vibe on the same wavelength. And and you can just yeah, there's ways to do it. But I definitely understand it. And that could be pretty scary. I think I've not traveled nursed yet, even though I have worked in a couple of ERs. Um, but that does seem. I can see that part being difficult, certainly.
0: Are you thinking about travel nursing? Is it like a back yeah, one, day,
2: one day, one day, okay. certainly. Yeah,
0: it's very um, exciting. The other
2: part is I mean, the Bay Area has so much and is so diverse, mm-hmm. and there's so many different hospital systems out here. And I've already worked for a couple of them. So it's almost like I get that experience here. Yeah. So pro versus con.
0: Yeah. yeah, it's cool. Like Matt's seen a few hospitals, like he's been to LA, San Diego, and, and Oakland. So he's kind of got the Northern California perspective and a Southern uh, california perspective because mm-hmm. even though healthcare is supposed to be i guess you could say uh, almost like universal like each hospital in each kind of location uh, deals with different things and it has their own way of, of managing you know the hospital for the most part
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: and i really like the like that you brought those three reasons because like if, if you're missing those three things like that's going to contribute to burnout if you can't take care of yourself if you don't have a good co relationship if you can't let loose in the hospital that's going to contribute so much to burnout like even smoking you smoking because you wanted to breathe because sometimes it gets so busy we don't take a break maybe you didn't want to smoke you just want to have that you just wanted to be outside of hospital just get away from that environment for a little bit and smoking yeah just us. a
2: change of state right. mm-hmm. certainly
0: so yeah burnouts like you know burnout's huge burn nursing job nursing as a career is physical mental external it's literally everything and just Burnout is so prevalent, and I feel like it's still not spoken about
2: enough. As it yeah. Should be. Are
1: you, are you ready for that topic? Are you ready to dive into PTSD versus burnout?
2: Yeah, we can do that, man. We can Let's do
1: that. Do so that's like the the soul of our conversation that we really wanted to have with um, Emilio here is how maybe as you know, and we had some research that we looked up. Maybe we're being misdiagnosed, just like in World War One, PTSD was diagnosed. Can you um scroll down for that note? I'm actually curious. I wrote down something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In, in World War One, um, the veterans were labeled as maligners, and they were shamed, and they basically were told that they don't have what it takes to be a, a soldier. You know, so they were misdiagnosed. It was then considered to have soldiers' heart, and then it was changed to battle fatigue.
2: And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't know,
1: I don't, I don't know exactly when a DSM five came out and coined the word PTSD, which is post traumatic stress disorder. Mm -hmm. But but this kind of loops around to nursing that, hey, maybe we call it burnout, but maybe it's actually PTSD for Mm -hmm. nurses and we're misdiagnosing this. And there's something that's not being talked about because, you know, nurses, we could take a lot of shit and we could keep getting stuff. You know, we could take we we take shit from patients. We take shit from upper management and we just take it, take it, take it. And maybe we cope negatively. And this is the this is something that we have to talk about.
2: Yeah. And we take shit from each other. And we take shit from each other that that's the other part to that um and when you say i you know when you talk about you've been to different places and you've been to different hospital systems um hospitals typically are a reflection of their community you know so who's working inside is the same folks work who are a part of the community and all of their qualities there will also be present in inside of the system you know and the system functions to try to iron out these things and to kind of Conform the people to to the system. But when you talk about burnout versus PTSD, like when I think of burnout, I almost think of just like a bonfire, right? Like you had some wood, and when that thing is burned out, the resource is gone, the resource is done. Um, But PTSD resounds a little bit more with me. And, you know, when you're working in these stressful ass environments where the level of expectation is incredibly, incredibly high. And the amount of people that we need to serve and treat and tend to is incredibly high. And the level in which we need to do that is through the roof, but the sense of control is very, very low and year after year um, operating in this, it, it has an effect on, on the psyche, but I kind of want to go back to, I think I'd read somewhere in the note you had a, a the definition from um, for PTSD well, post-traumatic stress, yes. for post-traumatic stress Um uh you read it for me? Yeah, please do. Okay.
0: So according to DSM 5, uh PTSD can stem from experiencing trauma firsthand as well as from witnessing a traumatic event, learning it happened to a loved one, and from repeatedly hearing details about one. Traumatic events typically involve death, sexual violence, and other injury. So not necessarily firsthand event, like I don't gotta go through the event to get PTSD. I can hear about it. Like man, might have um, let's say Matt gets raped. I might get PTSD from that because he's my good friend and now like I'm worried about him, so I have PTSD about that. You know, it could happen directly and you could it's it's not just a firsthand approach. PTSD can stem from literally literally anything. And then it it's manifests several ways. including unwanted memories, flashback, nightmares, and extreme stress when reminded about the triggered event.
2: Absolutely. And I'll add loss of memory to that. Um But I kind of want to get into the definition before I kind of um, share how I I see it is just kind of like in the studying and exposure I've had to different physicians, different researchers, different spiritualists, different teachers, is that almost the definition to trauma specifically is not necessarily the effects, not so much in the symptomology of it, but more as trauma is anything that separates you from your wholeness. Trauma is anything that separates you from the dynamic calling that you operate in and which you are. And so year after year of having to put up walls, year after year of having to operate with limited resources and trying to put out all these fires, but yet you don't have the resources and the capability or the manpower to do that in a a humanly kind way, um, in a timely manner. And year after year, you, when you kind of have this separation from your wholeness, in, in my opinion, and this trauma kind of sets in, you kind of become a contracted nurse. Almost you become like a stick figure of the more complex whole nurse that you are and, and that's what you're called to be. So you, even the skills that you have honed, even all of the abilities that you have, uh, the, even the emotional capabilities and capacity you have for human suffering... It's contracted. You don't have as much access to it. And year after year going in this way, especially for nurses who are have an empathic nature, it becomes strained. And I've noticed one huge symptom that that happens when you kind of get this uh, limited access to your empathic nature is we stop teaching. We stop teaching our patients or We stop waiting for the clarity in the patient's eyes for what we're teaching. We're just kind of like, blah, 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 blah. Okay, I checked that I gave the education, but you don't wait for the clarity. There's no follow through. And so it's the thing about nursing and the thing about being called to this, if it's that serious for you, because for some people, it's not that serious for them, or they're not quite in that space where they've kind of given their willingness to really do this thing as a life calling and you can get to that. You don't have to start there. You can grow into that certainly. Um is you have to choose your calling again and again and again and again and again and again again. You talk to these these nurses and I've talked to nurses who have been in this thing for 10, 20, 30, even 40 years. One of the educators at my first job was she she retired after 40 years in this thing. Um, you find and these are people that still come to work and love to do what they do find those people and if you can't identify or if they can't verbalize what it is that makes them successful just be in their presence be in the presence so that your presence can kind of also be affected and change and be nutritious be medicine in a way for for the people in these beds certainly
1: that's that's deep man you, you have a very deep it's kind of funny because i feel like i'm empath as well i am for Yeah, sure, you are you are and yeah. and and because you are the same way you feel people's energy so much more. And it's weird to explain and people don't understand it, but you just feel people's crap, dude. And they don't, they have to just be around you and erupt. For some reason, you have to learn how to make a, like a force field barrier around them because it'll negatively affect you. Right. Um, And one thing I wanted to bring up is when you said patient education, where you lose that, it's like compassion fatigue, right. From PTSD or burnout where you're mentally checking out, and I'll admit it myself. You could admit it. I'm sure you have. How often have you went on the education section under the EMR, electronic medical record, and just said, check, 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 check. I educated them. Done. And then you put patient, acceptance, educated, needs reinforcement. Done. And you just sign it off because you're just fatigued from everything that you're doing, task management. Mm-hmm. And the most important thing that we forget, hey, these people go home. They don't know the shit that we know. They don't have the education. They don't know. But yet, we're taking that away from them. The most important thing, probably, that a patient could have, we're we're we're, I'm cutting them short because of the stress, the the unfair ratios, the no lunch breaks, the fatigue, the the the, what do you want to call it, the low staffing. Just everything just keeps piling on to us. Oh hey, you know we have ninety percent on on this time. Well, and then we're Mm -hmm. just getting bombarded with negativity, man, and. We as nurses, maybe it's a calling just like you said when we went into this job we're we're put into an environment with so much sympathetic nervous system stimulation that we're, we can't continue doing it for a long time. Mm-hmm. We get fatigued, bro it's crazy
2: yeah it, it's 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 insane how much how how we can be depleted like that. it's um, and, and I hear what you're saying, you know, like when you're charting, but you listen, if you chart it, you did it. No, I'm just playing. You know? <laughs> what do you mean it's true, bro? <laughs> I completely did the whole thing. You know, and we have to take responsibility for what we can do. We can't because we're shorting ourselves too. You 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 can't be proud of what you're doing and 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 be shortened like that. And I've done it before, but we can take responsibility, but part of that also falls on the system. This is one thing that the system cannot, and when you say what is the system, you know, is it this non- person that kind of umbrellas us no it's people people create the system you know and and administrators create the system and nurses also have a part in creating the system and what they allow and the time they allow it in um, is part of their their responsibilities to create help us create the space in order for us to successfully do that you talk about you getting these frequent flyers why are you always getting these frequent flyers who are a no times four have no psych issues you know there is a, a knowledge deficit there and who was taking the time to actually sit with them and wait for the clarity to come into their eyes and make a pact with them? I had a patient come in. He had taken his nighttime insulin, it's like 40 units or something through the roof. And then he took it again because he forgot. So he came in with stroke like symptoms and he was just so fearful. He must have been like in his 41 or 42. He was a really young guy. And um, the wife was there and she, I don't know what to do. You know, he's, he's not taking care of his body. And I just, I said, wife, come here. Take his hands. I grab their hands. I say, we make a pact right now. We make a pact right now to to help save each other and to to connect to our own bodies. We have to keep people accountable, you know. And we have the knowledge to be able to do that. But do we have the willingness and the space to be able to do that? You know, do we have the boldness to actually engage other human beings like that? Um, I don't know. You tell me. It's 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 our own personal commitments to it.
0: Yeah, it's hard because. I'm sure you get freaking flyers. I work in a vel- very specialized using it. We do a heart failure and an LVED. so we retain our population. If they go to like a different hospital, they I don't to get shipped to us because we did the heart transplant, mm-hmm. we did the LVAD, mm-hmm. they go to our CHF clinic. So, but I get burnt out a lot from teaching the same patients repeatedly the same thing over and over again. Like, hey, take your anti rejection medications. No, because this has happened. There's only like, there's only so much I could do within the time frame that, that they are at the hospital. And what happens, majority of the times, there's a point that this patient reaches where they just become really non-compliant on their, you know, uh, coumadin or the anti-rejection medications. They're they're sick of taking this medication. They're sick of having this pump. They're sick of just doing what they're supposed to do. And I see them a lot. I see them, you know, once a month or a few times a month. I see them every six months, every few months, and. It takes a toll on I me mean, personally, because yeah, absolutely. I could, no matter no matter what I do, I could, you know, I look them right in the eyes, tell them this and this, hey, you're here because you keep you keep doing this. Like, we saved your life two, three times. You're not going to have a fourth or fifth time. You're not going to. Like, your pump's going to clot off. There's going to be so much times that, that we could exchange that pump before there's nothing else for, for us to do. And they agree, yeah, like, they, they follow their low sort of diet, their flu restriction in the hospital. You send them out, and, and bang, that's it. They're, they're right back in the door. And the main issue with that is... I feel like a lack of education at an early age, uh, poor coping in youth, and a very bad social, social dynamics. Those are the three main things that I see that take a good patient to hospital and completely turn them upside down once, once they leave. It's just those three things. Lack of education, yeah, yeah. social dynamics, and a, a rough upbringing.
2: And yeah. and that's it's-
0: sad, so I feel like we as nurses, we see the acute version, but there's something that has to be done preventative. Uh, yeah. the whole education uh, at a younger age better schools
2: yeah and i mean and such as the limitation to modern medicine is we are trying to discern you know is this a knowledge thing is this just the a body thing and we can't see that the connection between the mind and the body and they we don't have the the, the tools to be able to help establish them and build help them build a relationship to their body especially in acute care you know, when, when do we have the time to do it? There are limitations to what we do, and there are limitations to only approaching it from a scientific perspective. You know, it's, it's, it's tough work. And, and it's kind of like, especially in the ER, where the moment that you have with them has to be an excellent moment because you only have 10 seconds. You, know, you don't have more than that sometimes, you really don't. And, and, that, and, that's, and that's a reality to it.
0: Sometimes like, healthcare reminds me of the military industrial complex. I'm not sure if, if you know what that is. I, mean, I haven't heard that. But that's basically like, you know, there's war going on and then these, these companies make materials for, for war. They make weapons, things like that. Like we're supposed to live in a society where we progress to being more cooperative, but there's still war going on and there's still businesses profiting mm-hmm. off war. So mm-hmm. it's kind of the same thing with healthcare. Like we have all these pharmaceutical Ooh, you companies. You said something right there. Uh-huh. Yeah, we have all these pharmaceutical companies. We have all these healthcare systems. We're supposed to be getting healthier, getting better but you still see the, the same shit. You know, the, it's a revolving door in the hospital. We treat, they send them out, they're back, give give them medication. They don't adhere to it because we don't really expect them to. And then they're, they're right back in and just like a vicious cycle. And nothing ever gets solved because the corporations are making money. So they're not gonna really change or act any different if their CEOs are trying to, you know, make their, their next percentage of, of income or whatever. There's really nothing that is kind of pushing for, Uh, benefit from a health
1: standpoint because everyone's making all this money and no one really wants to change
2: yeah Yeah, huge disconnect
1: and i wanted to add on to that and also you have the the meetings that happen with staff nurses and managers and then ceos and whatever different district managers of hospitals they're not talking about creating a healing environment or why this patient is having this done their their main thing is just these numbers what are we going to do here okay, nurses, no overtime. Make sure you clock out at 12.12. 12. Don't go over 12.03 because you're getting double time. Like those are the conversations they're having. They're not having the conversations that we're having that at the end of the day, I feel like would make a bigger impact on a larger scale in society. But it's me and you, we're having this conversation. We're having this conversation. It's not putting monies in anybody's pocket. And that's why it just gets you know brushed away.
2: Yeah,
1: As Hospitals cutting costs, making changes and trying to Improve patient satisfaction
0: all, all at the same point while I'm trying to cut cut out the middleman for the most part. That's not how it works. Yeah, and and and
2: there's and that's the yeah. Whew, that's there in a way. There are partners. You know, the system. We partner with the system in order for us to enter into that space and do what we do. So it's they are our partners. I think one responsibility on our end is to do what we can, where we can, in a limited amount of time to humanize the hospital experience. Because in the hospital, it can be very inhumane if you and I know y'all have seen in the ICU, especially in the ICU where it's almost inhumane to keep somebody alive. Dude, we we're, that we're happening. keeping the body long, alive longer than they should have ever been alive for months at a time. What are we doing? And I only say that in the moments that we have, we can humanize a thing. For example, in the ER, um, one thing I learned from, one of my favorite charge nurses ever, and this was when I was a tech, is um, just from watching her, is when somebody died in the ER, we were required as a matter of honor and a matter of um, respect to take a warm blanket from the warmer and place it over their body. It didn't matter how long they had been gone. It didn't matter if there was family there or not. And, you know, sometimes there was a big family there and you took the warm blankets in and, you you know, does anybody want to place, you know, the warm blankets on your, your loved one? You know, and it was just in that moment where you take that, you build a culture, you take a moment to build the culture of humanizing that moment. Because when people feel that they were treated well, when they were touched well, it changes the perspective of that encounter, you know, and that's where we can step in and do what we do as we partner with the system. And perhaps we can build a culture and touch other areas to where that now the work family can operate in this and it could be. Uh, a more fluid, wholesome thing, certainly.
0: That's for something special.
1: Did, did a family ever ask you to pray with them before? To okay, pray? Uh, mm-hmm. it, it happened before plenty of times where I hugged them. Uh, they came back to me. I had episodes where I, I for example, um, so I don't know how familiar with, um, I'll just break it down for the guests. So basically, yeah. if you have if you have life support connected, you have a breathing tube down your throat, in order to take that tube out we have to put the patient on something called CPAP where they're breathing on their own for 30 minutes to see if they meet qualifications and we turn off all their sedation so they're completely consciously aware and mm-hmm. I, I would ask the patient because he was very sick he had cancer and i'm mm-hmm. like you know do you do you want to live like do you want to continue doing this because mm-hmm. the next step is to have a breathing tube in your throat a trach and he said no he, his wife already died he's been mm-hmm. single when I had him before getting intubated, cause he had a, a huge um, surgery, I forgot the name, but they removed part of the pancreas, gallbladder, part of the intestines. Like he was talking about his wife, Margie. She already passed away. She, the, she he, she is all he was holding on to. Like mm-hmm. they're, they're ready to meet on the other side or whatever dimension. Correct. And the next day I see the family and I, and, Hey, listen, I talked to Frank or whatever his name is. And he told me he doesn't want to, continue doing this he's suffering what happens mm-hmm. in a couple days he gets a trach tube he gets a peg tube where is he going to the nursing home what's going to happen sure. there we already know the freaking serious events and and that yeah. stuff really hits me man and, and it becomes traumatic for you when you get these patients that are mm-hmm. you know they're contracted. they Absolutely. can't do anything they're they're coughing their lungs out you're just suctioning them and that face that they make that you know they're like choking on mm-hmm. something that's just traumatic now that I look at it and and and, if, and it messes with me just like you said the psyche because we know that these patients have no quality of life yet it is our job to keep them alive and, yeah. and that's that's where you are oh, when your yeah. spirit and your like you fight with yourself because you're still you have to do the, do the job at the end of the day
2: yeah yeah we have to listen we have to listen to them um, that reminds me she must have been about 95 or 96 years old. She was an older woman. She kept herself very clean. She lived alone. And she came in um, and we almost coded her. Well, she came in with a bunch of Norco, empty Norco bottles. And she had saved all of her Norco bottles for months. It must have been probably six, seven months, maybe even a year worth of Norco. And she had taken them all at once. And she was attempting to end her life. But this woman had outlived her children. She'd outlived her husband. She was alone. Some people just know when they want to go. And we need capacity to listen. I, I hear you when you say you have those ICU patients, because when I worked in physical therapy in the ICU, they call us in, in on these cases, and it was like, this person's not living. You know what I'm saying? But we're getting, and we're just torturing their physical body even more. You know, and, and where's the place where, where we humanize that experience? You know, and we say it's okay to let go, you know? And, and that's a reflection of us not understanding death you know, and perhaps we don't fully understand life. Those two go hand in hand. And that's, that's, a t- I, I, I respect the ICU nurses. That's, that's intense.
0: Do you think religion plays, plays a lot with that? Like with uh, the fact not being able to let go?
2: I do think it plays a part. I think it's multifaceted. Um, I also think the scientific mind and um, ignorance, you know, and what we allow the public to think about what the capabilities of science and um, we don't, Explain the quality of life that the patient's going to have when we're in the ER and we're like Do you want everything to be done? Do you want us to pump on their chest? Do you want it? You know to be intubated a tube down their throat that we don't explain that you won't be able to talk to your loved one You won't be able to engage your loved one like that. It's just in that frenzy You just you'll you'll sell your soul to get whatever it is that you think is, you know, is going to happen And that's not a reality
0: and when you do bring that up, like I brought up to a family one time where their loved one wasn't doing good. We knew that. It was going to end up being a, being a code and it's going to be like you know, a s- slow code. And uh, they got upset when I told them that, hey, your family members are most likely not going to come out of this. You're, they're not going to be the same ever again. You know, their brainstem is herniating. So it's a matter of time before they start to code. And they're like, no, they got really upset with me for me being honest and tell them, telling them like the whole disease process. And I end up having to like have another nurse go in there and, and you know talk to mm-hmm. them because they were really mm-hmm. upset, so even though as nurses you try to kind of uh, bring them back down to earth and explain the graphic nature of the situation that that's gonna come if if they code families just don't want to hear it so they' which which I understand because yeah. what they're dealing yeah. with is is a lot it's something to that I don't wish I'm my worst enemy, and it's really hard to deal with, so I understand. People might not be in their normal state of mind, but like you said, it's, it's hard to talk to them about it because a lot of times they just throw out the window anyways and they just do what they want to do. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And, and also the people that come to the hospital, like we have to realize that they're in a state of anxiety. They're, mm-hmm. they're, they're mm-hmm. in the, they're in the sympathetic nervous system. They're, they're so narrow minded and their vision, their thoughts, like they're not understanding everything that's going on, man. And it makes our job so much harder. And you guys kind of made me bring up a story that I got, I got kind of chills. But it was a, it was a young guy in his forties, um, man. Ischemic bowel came up to me, blew on the face, man. We intubated him. He had a GI bleed. He went into DIC, which is your, you clot so much. You have microclots all over and you just stop losing circulation. He was on four pressers. It was an Indian family. And he mm. had two, he had two girls back home, man. Mm. And I, and I actually had only one patient because the Chargers took my patient. I was doing everything I can on this motherfucker, man. I was trying to keep this guy alive so much. And then I knew when the Epi is up to 20, the Levo, I just went up to 30 because there's nothing else I could do. And it was just a matter of time. And the family was completely delusional. The, the father's asking me, how is he doing? They asked me if the panel came back for the flu because he was on contact. Mm-hmm. I'm like... I'm like, right now, that is not our concern. I'm just trying to keep him alive. And then he ended up coding. His wife became freaking um, you know, lightheaded, gave him a seat. Let's just say 30 minutes went past. And the father was asking me if they could bring the, the body home. And I'm like, I don't think we could do that. I had to ask my charge. I don't know if that's the case. And then the father, I, I kind of step away from the room, and he's screaming to his son. He's He's hitting his fucking body, and I'm just like, I don't see this, but I'm hearing it. And I'm like, man, that's rough. That's rough. And that brings me to, sorry, to just wrap this up, a study that I, I found online. It's the study from the Journal of Heart and Lung Transplantations. Mm-hmm. And because we're talking about PTSD, they found that critical care nurses meet the criteria for PTSD by 48% based on the study. So the shit that I see, you know, it makes me kind of wonder, can we possibly have a little bit of PTSD? Or should we bring awareness to this? Cause there's maybe nurses that are walking around without even knowing it, man. And they're just burnt out calling off and they're not even aware of it, man.
0: I mean, I personally, since we're on a PTSD we're sharing stories. I, I used to have a little bit of PTSD. I kind of got over it now, but I was like fresh off orientation, maybe like three or four months in being alone. And I've had an LVAD patient and he was in a recliner and I want to get him to the bed. So I actually had him stand up and he ended up having a stroke. <laughs> Right when he stood up, I don't know what happened with him, but he was an Elvet, so unfortunately there are more prone to having strokes. I <laughs> don't know where he just went limp. I pushed him on the bed, you know, got him down down to the CT. You know, he had like a five or six millimeter left to right right shift, and it was inoperable. And that gave me PTSD. Every time I stood somebody up out of the chair, I was like, "Well, fuck, this guy was mid thirties, super young with an elevator and he had a stroke on me." Imagine what this grandma, age sixty, is going to do if I stand her up. And that was always in the back of my mind for, for mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. like a year, year and a half. And I finally got over it. I'm like, even if this stroke out, nothing you could do about it. Just treat the cause and go. But that was like super scary. And I was off orientation, three or four months. up. I, I literally shit my pants. I'm like, dude, I killed this guy by standing him up out of the fucking recliner. I was like, mm-hmm. no way. And he was su- 34, like 34, 35 years old. And ever and like it a year, year and a half. I was scared to get people up. Damn. I was like, we're not going to get up to the morning.
2: Yeah, was like, yeah. Because when Dr. Ron is-
0: Nicholas helped me. You know? Yeah.
2: And it's true. And it's, and it's important. It's worth mentioning to all the nurses listening that you can be traumatized at any age, at any place in your career, something traumatic can, can happen, you know, and you is, you don't have permission to not figure out how you're going to heal from that. You, this, this is, is difficult work, you know, and, and if you want to be successful, you have to figure that out. You don't have permission to always come into work and be that stoic battle axe ass nurse. You don't have permission to do that. I'm sorry. Um, and it's it's. To, I mean, even in the ER, I mean, we see children code. You know, we see them come in wounded or hurt, <clears throat> or or violated in some way. Um, and it's you know, just the other day, you know, I, I had a kid who who came in and he was autistic. So you, it's a little bit diff- more difficult to diagnose children who have autism. Um, But, you know, he had a brain bleed. And so to see, or or when a child is coding, or when you've lost a child, the sound that a tribe makes or a family makes when they give voice to their grief all at the same time, I'm sure y'all know about it, is traumatizing, is terrifying. And in those moments, all of your skills, all of your capacity to help other human beings has to be there. You can't, in that moment, choose to be hands off. We don't have permission to do that, and so it's 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 tough work. But if you're called to it, you'll you'll find a way. You'll find a way. Absolutely,
0: that's very intense because I have never seen like a code on on a kid before mm-hmm. or or anything. The craziest thing I have probably seen with children is having um, to deal with a family and a child after the what's it called shaking uh, baby syndrome, where mm-hmm. uh, the family shakes the baby so much where I guess they're I don't know the brainstem gets gets herniated or or it gets yeah. cut off or something, mm-hmm. and then. The fact that you know that the family has done this to the baby and yet they're still around it and like acting like nothing happened like like they don't know what caused this because there's there's a gap in time where uh where the state hasn't taken the kid out of their care yet yeah you can't tell the family no because technically you, you know what happened but on paper and legally there's no proof of this happening that was probably the most like the saddest thing i've ever seen in my life and that's kind of what kind of drew me to go into the NICU when I wanted when I graduated nursing school, but there was no jobs available for me. So I did cardiac IC. But I really wanted the NICU for 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 that sense was that I want to deal with I like to deal with kids. They come into this world so small, so vulnerable, and I wanted to be there like for them. Because as an adult, you 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 play out your life and you have a say on what goes on. You make choices. As an infant, as a kid, you don't have no choices you don't have a say in what that your mom was an alcoholic that she did a crack while you you were in the womb and you come up, come out, you know, a preterm, you don't have that kind of choice. So I really wanted to deal with these vulnerable kids because I feel like I play the biggest role with them compared to an adult where you keep telling them to change and change and they're still 40, 50 years old and they don't really care.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I've, I've heard nurses say <clears throat> when I can tell, I can tell they're a little bit off and say, you know, what's wrong? Oh, I've just lost my faith in people, you know, and it's, you know oh i just can't stand blah 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 it's there's they have to put a separation a separation in between them and other people because of what they've seen and they don't have capacity in that moment to to be able to deal with it you know and it's that's where the family unit of coworkers comes in you know and working in the er it's i remember there was a a child who had coded on my first job it is my first nursing job and it was the most traumatizing thing I had ever seen in my life. When I tell you about trauma, whew, Jesus. Um, but I remember I had to go to triage right after the code and I can hear the family just wailing and wailing. I mean, everybody in the waiting room can hear it. And then I got a call, you know, um, you gotta hurry up and get to the ambulance bay. You know, there's a woman in labor, hurry, bring a wheelchair. And, you know, it was one physician who said it's in the ER, it's almost like the mosaic of the human experience. One goes out, one comes in and all these parts are moving, all this chaotic nature is happening. Cause it's almost like the nature of being human is to be thrust into chaos. And you have to find your place in that and find your role in that and be okay with the effort that you gave that situation and be okay uh, to go home with that and, and be proud of it. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Dude, like when I was younger and I thought about nursing,
1: it's nowhere near what I, what I, not even a
2: little yeah. bit, not even a little bit.
1: Right, how about how about we just give them the reality? of The people that are listening, the nursing students. What did you, what did you think, for example, going into nursing, and what's the shitstorm that came out of it?
2: <laughs> bro, that's. Are you asking me?
1: I'm asking you, man. I'm ready to hear it, bro. Um,
2: I don't think I knew. I, I didn't in my mind really put together what nursing was. Even watching the old ER stuff, I I, I didn't exactly know what that meant. What they don't teach you in nursing school is how to be thrusted into the human experience, it, it, that part, interacting with other humans and all of the levels that they can be at. That, that's, that part I, I necessarily wasn't ready for. I had the benefit of gradually going through a hospital system in different roles, genetics, physical therapy, the pharmacy, before I got to the ER. So people going straight into critical care as a new nurse, going into the ICU or the ER, I can't imagine these poor little souls being thrust to go, we're you know starting at Subway, and then now you all work and try and save people's lives. You know this ain't putting sandwiches together. You know this it's it's complex on a level that even doctors and physicians and people who've studied uh, uh, um, anthropology and 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 uh, all how social interactions work would struggle with. That is the complexity of being a nurse. Man, is you have to be a, a healer, and you have to be. Um, somebody who's willing to get down and come to the level of that human suffering in a humble way to be really effective, you know, but you don't learn that until years and years of going in, you know, you, you develop all of these skills, nursing school, it doesn't even touch. It's barely touching the surface. You know, if you're going into this thing, this is going to be a lifelong journey of learning about the human experience for freaking sure. But there's there, but there's also a lot of joy to be had. Even in suffering moments, I've dealt with a lot of cancer patients, even children who had cancer. I remember this 15-year-old, he came in short of breath. I can't remember if it was lymphoma or something was growing on his leg. I can't remember what it was, but he was like, no more. I'm done. I don't want one more intervention. You know, and some of the staff was crying and the mother was crying. But when you walked in the room and you encountered him, it was like you walking into the room of an old sage or something, like in his in his heart and his spirit, he knew that he was done and I went in there and we were kind of cracking jokes and being silly and stuff. So even in the last moments, if you have that humorous part to you, that joy inside, you can walk into a room of somebody who's dying and be completely cracking up. I've seen it and I do it all the time. You know, it's, it's, it's a way of being on the floor and in these spaces. It's for you if you want it, you know, um, or you can choose to just be, you know, a battle ax nurse. I don't know, you know, it's up to you.
1: And definitely when it comes to death, the patient has to accept that part of his life where he's at death and suffering. Cause if he's not accepting that stage, you know, the energy that he's transmitting, he is upset. He could be rude. There's there's those patients and he has resentment, anger and sometimes even freaking regret. And that seeing regret in someone's eyes is freaking horrible, man. It's, it's tough, man. And it's, I don't know what else to say about regret. It, when, when you look at people's eyes and they have it, yeah, I don't know how a, to describe
0: it. There's a handful of times where like people were at the brink of death and you're like like they were happy before and then the physician broke the news, like, hey, there's no really more interventions or therapies we could do. And like I come on shift, like I think, okay? And it's like it's like, yeah, a doctor told me that they're not gonna do anything else for me. And it's like, all right, do you wanna talk about anything? he's like, No. I'm like, Well what someone's on your mind, tell me about it. He's like, Well man, you know, I wish I would have spent more time with my kids. You know, well I wish. No, I can't fly. My children live in live in Texas. I haven't seen them in 12 years. I wish I was able to fly with them or fly there and see them. Now, now I can't because it's too too high risk. And that's like the, like the worst thing. Like that, like you said, like that regret or that like resentment towards somebody. Like you could tell that that now when she hits the fan, there's so many things they want to do that it took for granted, and now they can't do it, and it's it sucks. Like it's heartbreaking not only for me but for them. And then you slowly see them deteriorate even quicker because they have that back of their mind. Like, Hey, I didn't do this. I didn't do that. I wasn't a good father. I wasn't a, a good son, a good, you know, husband. And because of all that people don't come to visit him because there's no family around him and he's literally in there alone, no support. Uh, kids don't know what's going on. Wife doesn't know what's going on because he's completely isolated himself and now he's full of regret and he just deteriorates so quick. He, you know, they tell him yeah. that he has like three months to live and you know we have um, intubated by like day number seven. They they go down quick.
2: Yeah, and and I and I don't know. I don't know. Maybe if there's nothing more for him to learn, maybe maybe you, as somebody outside of that, can learn something and spread that, you know, to others. But even even I mean, I remember this young cat. He must have been about thirty. He had cancer. I mean, if breaths were measured in time, he had about one week left. And you know, pain was an issue, so he came in the ER. And I was accessing his port. And I noticed this tattoo It was half of sun and a half moon. It was a new tattoo. And I, in Spanish, this is what I barely knew Spanish at this point. Um, I, in broken Spanish, I told him that I liked his tattoo. He barely rustled. As I was charting, I noticed that we had the same birthday. And so when I went back in the room, I told him in Spanish, like, oh, you know, we have the same birthday. And he kind of like lifted up barely. I mean, he could barely move. He lifted up and he had the brightest, cleanest, like hazel looking eyes and he said, El Rey, which is which is like the king. He was a Leo. And there was a real brightness in his eyes. And it's even like at that cusp of, of death, of last moments, you can connect and, and give them something. It don't even have to be about memories. It could just be about accessing joy or human interaction. And there could be something for both of you in that, you know, and, and I think that's a powerful, wonderful thing. I didn't realize this conversation was going to go, go in, in, in all those moments. I hope you guys are, are, are okay with that.
0: You know, keep it up, man. Like, it's it's sad somebody passed away, but when, like when you said, when you lock eyes with them, it's almost like they're passing on a little bit of their spirit or their energy. You know? Yes. Like it's, it's like, it's like, thank you. Here, I'm going to hook you up with a little bit of this. You know?
2: Yeah, yeah. And that's for us. And that's as as nurses, we get that. That's part of what uh, the benefit for us is that we are a recipient to these powerful, powerful human experiences. And we are asked to participate with that. And burnout, PTSD, all of that is in opposition to us being a benefit and a benefactor to that. And if we don't choose ourselves, if we don't step back into our wholeness, we miss out on a whole career of that. And that's a damn shame. That's a damn shame. We have a responsibility to stay in our own, to stay in our calling for freaking sure. That's, and we can't necessarily blame the hospital system because if that's the case, then you move on you know, at some point, then you have to find a different facet for you to do what you love.
0: Have you ever felt burnout? Like real yeah, real out? How'd
2: that feel? Absolutely. Absolutely. You feel helpless. You feel helpless in a way. <laughs> There's even, I mean, and you're going to feel it even when you think you have all the skills, all the tools, it's going to come and knock on your door. It was a couple of weeks ago. I was running around like a fool. I had the hallway assignment, which is the most... So, so in the ER for, uh, so I'm in the hallway, I'm trying to run around and grab resource because nothing is where you want it to be, right? Of course. And I had a lady hypertensive through the roof, another one with the flu in the hallway. It was a bunch of bullshit. And I'm running around and one of the old school trauma nurses stopped me. And he was like, hey, yeah, which one of your patients is dying? And I'm like, uh, no, but I got this, I got the, well, but which one's dying? And I'm thinking he wants to help me. And I'm like, well, which one's dying? And I said, well, none of them are dying. And he's like, exactly. They walked away, you know, Damn. and you, <laughs> you know, and it's, there's something to learn from these elder nurses, you know? And I said, elder doesn't mean old, you know, for, so for you battle ax nurses who are again offended, <laughs> elder doesn't mean old. It just means you're more experienced. You see it in a better way than another nurse does. And I needed that moment to snap my ass back into gear because I was all frenzy and I'm not as um, um, beneficial to others. If I'm, if I'm in a frenzy, you know, that's what you battle in the ER is, you pick up their energy, you pick up their urgency. And it doesn't mean it's an emergency, it just means it's urgent, it needs to get done. And if you pick that up and you hold that from every patient, you're running around like a damn fool.
1: So because you're an empath, that means you're picking up people's energies quicker, correct? Mm-hmm. How have you personally realized being an empath, how do you cope with those energies being thrown at you? And then catching yourself, you know, I need to slow down, Nothing, no one is dying, right? How- how do you like pick up on that and how do you cope with it? And how have you like dealt with it when you kind of came to that realization? Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. There are a couple of meditative practices that I use and, and I can go over those. There's just two of them. Um, but it's when you are more of yourself on the floor, more of that wholesome nurse, more connected to your wholesomeness, more in your authenticity, there's space in that. There's room in that to kind of encompass people's suffering. And as you can go in and out of rooms and you learn to almost like when you go to the store and you're just window shop, you're not touching and picking stuff up. You're just window shopping. So all of that energy there, don't touch it. You can interact with it, but don't pick it up. Don't hold on to it. And that takes some practice and that takes some inner work. um, Certainly Um, there are, um, And I learned a lot about that as a tech. When I was a tech, as soon as I got to work, I would walk quickly the entire ER. That was even in areas that weren't my section. I would look in each room, look at the patient's face, look at the uh, look at the monitor, look at the patient's face, look at the and I would go in each room and I would just test the energy in each room and just see you know who was dying, who wasn't dying, who was urgent, who was emergent, and you kind of learn how to interact with these energies because it happens on a volume of uh, that is is staggering. You know, and there's there's two meditative practices that I utilize outside of work to help me while I'm in work. You have to do this work outside so that it's useful inside. It's
1: like a muscle, right? It has to kind of grow and get bigger and keep getting to use it.
2: Absolutely. It's that's exactly what it is. Um, two of them, both of them, I le- learned from Dr. Rachel Remen. Have you ever heard of Dr. Rachel Remen?
0: No, who
2: is she or he? Oh my God, Rachel Remen um, is um, an old school physician, born in New York, taught in San Francisco, um, a, a, a class called the Healer's Art, and she wrote a couple of books, Kitchen Table Wisdom, something else. But y'all get into her gold to the healing community. Um, two of these meditative practices I learned from her. One of the, and they both do two different things. One of them is a grounding exercise, and um, in a, in a time of solitude, you need a couple minutes, maybe five to seven minutes. Clean your stethoscope, put it in your ears, get your landmarks, you know, and come down to that apex. And you just listen to your heart. And for the first moment, you'll kind of hear like you're listening for heart sounds, like, do I got AFib? I know I'm 33, but do I got AFib? You know, Mm -hmm. then you're listening for breath sounds. And you just listen to your heart. It's that freaking simple. And bro, I'm telling you, after seven minutes, you take them off and you're so zen. You just grounded yourself in the heart. And it's not that serious, but in a way it's incredibly sacred just to be able to do that for yourself. It's, it's a grounding exercise and you do that outside of work to be able to use it inside. The other one is um, a little bit more complex, but it still just takes a couple minutes. Don't take more than 15 minutes. Don't take a long time at this. And it's kind of like a journaling exercise. You do You give yourself a nurse report in a very narrative way and you recite backwards from where you're sitting after you got home. I'm sitting. I got out of the car. I drove home. I gave a report on my 18,000 patients because I was at a ratio. And you go, I was in room two and I, we were coding him. I was in room five and I did this. And you take three questions with you. You hold on to the question. And as you go through your report, you allow the question to be answered. And you're going to answer these three as you sit, as you sit, S-I-T. One, what surprised me? And you ask, you know, what surprised me? Oh, oh, I taught that new grad something about X, Y, or Z. I was surprised that I was bold enough to come out and actually share this knowledge. You do it again from the top. Okay, I gave report on this, blah, 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 blah. What inspired me? What literally inspired me? You know, perhaps it was that I sat and I I took a longer moment to listen to a patient and that was a non-medicinal medicine for that patient to just be able to listen. And I'm inspired to be able to do that. And then thirdly, you know, what touched me, what touched me, what moved me. And as you find these little golden nuggets, you can take them with you and you can hold them. And you may not even remember them when you get to work, but how they made you feel will be fuel to you. And you kind of move in. And as you, you, sometimes you remember them for an hour, two hours, eight hours, and you go to sleep, but suddenly it will get to the point where you can enjoy and answer those questions in the moment that it happens when you're interacting with the patient and you're right, boom. And you're just in, and that that sense of satisfaction, that sense of flow you get into um, can include all this gold and you keep that with you. And man, when I want to tell you, you, it's like you retain the richness from the experience to be able to do that. And I'm telling you, don't take a long time to do it. Do it real quickly, maybe two, three times a week. Um, I do these two meditative practices just a couple times a week. I actually don't do them a lot, but they've been a great benefit to me. A great benefit to me. That reminds
0: me because when I started nursing, and uh, I felt like I was I was incompetent and I didn't, didn't know shit about anything. So I used to come home and ref, like similar to what you would do, I would re- reflect on what happened. But the three things that I would talk or, or think, three things that I would think about is what happened. So let's say a, a patient coded. So what happened? The patient coded. Uh, what I learned? I learned that he was hyperglycemic, so we gave insulin. And then, uh, what could I have done done differently? I didn't know where the insulin was was kept or I didn't know uh, that my cabinet was not stocked. And then I kind of reflected on that. So for next time I know, hey, check my supplies, know where the meds are and check like labs. And yeah. I, I just felt like I wasn't catching out as quickly as, as I should, which I feel like everybody feels that way. But I would always reflect on my day with those three things. Like, you know, what happened? What could I have done better? And what I learned? And that helped you tremendously. Yeah, absolutely. It has the power to shift
2: your, your perception. Right. You you to answer your to your right,
0: yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And I, I love how, do you're so-so for man. It's mm-hmm. so cool. And um, I'm really appreciating everything that you're sharing with us because I, I, I'm taking this episode in and I'm being selfish because I'm learning so much from you, man. You you really are. Those people that are listening, I'm sure you're really, sh- you're shifting a perspective in us because sometimes um, we, we, we get the best of ourselves where. We're upset. We're going to work, and it's task, task, task. And you, you, really are helping paint the picture of a really rich environment that's making a difference for you because you're learning from it, and for the patient and every aspect. Whether they go home, they pass away, the human interaction that you're saying that's been lost with, you know.
2: hmm Yeah. And I'm, I'm going to ask
1: you a question that I'm sure
0: you probably get asked a bunch of times. But I feel like since you're an ER nurse, I got to ask you this: What's the craziest things you've seen in the ER?
2: The craziest thing I've seen in the ER.
0: Or what hit you, hit your heart the most, like most emotional experience or something crazy you saw, just anything like that.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, what can I say? It's funny because when you ask ER nurses that, it's just kind of like every day is something, you know, but it's, um, I don't know that I can give one, one specific thing, but one thing that I love about working in the ER that moves me, that impacts me, that creates family with the other ER nurses and the techs and physicians is when you're coding somebody and you get ROSC, you know, or when you're coding somebody and there's a fluidity there um, and the communication is there and the teamwork is there. And when you leave out of that room, you know, that you did well, you know, and you know, that you, you all just feel like some badass mother, you know what I'm saying? And and the vibe is there, and, and you love it. And I don't know how it is in ICU. I mean, I've seen a few codes in ICU, but it's it's it seems different to me in ICU. But uh, I, I don't know what uh, what's your guys' experience with with that there,
1: dude. When you're when you're talking, I just had this thing like. I had a few codes. I was sweating. You know, my glasses fell off during the code. They're hanging. Out. Oh god, are they foggy? Somebody was taking off my glasses while I'm coding, and I'm just sweating, man. My shirt is kind of drenched. And I'll go to the bathroom. I will wipe my face. I'm like, Matt, you're a fucking badass. That's I <laughs> I like, I'm, like I'm not stroking my own ego. I'm just like, man, that was that was intense shit, man. Like, yeah, that's I don't think it gets you don't get more of a adrenaline rush than honestly coding somebody, man. That yeah. Yeah. maybe. Near death or bungee jumping, but dude, that drilling you're getting, and it's just so beautiful that teamwork that you're having as a team. If it's running smooth, med search codes, man, bad stories, right? But in the ICU for the most part, you got a good squad. It's it runs pretty smooth, man. It's and it's very rewarding at the end of the day. Yeah, like you Thank said, you. when you when you get that ROSK back and you walk out the room, it's like damn business. Even even if you
0: don't get the ROSK back, and you know when you ran a code well, you know when everybody was doing what they had to do. Meds yes. were passed on time, pulses, clutch. Everyone's working as the team, you walk out of the room, and you're like, damn, that was a fucking solid code, man. We haven't had that kind of a code, code for a while. And yeah. when, you, when you have a shitty code, too, you're just like, damn, that code was kind of shady. And everyone's like, yeah, yeah. That, was a, that was a fucking yeah, code. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, you know, yeah. It happens. We're not 100% all the time. And as a mm-hmm. nurse, you don't judge yourself or you shouldn't judge yourself on your bad days. You're the nurse you are on your good days. You know, I've said that all the fucking time in the podcast.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I got I, I'm, I'm
1: sorry. <laughs> no, I, I agree with
2: you, man. I, I absolutely agree with you. Mm hmm.
1: Mercy, it's been an awesome time on the show, man. Um, I love how we talked about PTSD and burnout. I wish to get you back on in the future because we didn't educate the nurses on how to maybe create this healing environment. We kind of talked about the bad, the ugly, and we talked a lot about healing. But it'd be cool to think about what kind of tips we could give to actually promote this healing environment in a situation that's shitty, unfortunately, because we all have, we don't have the perfect hospital that the NCLEX creates, right? We just... We deal with things. We just, you know, got to do things our way. You know, I'm sure at the jury rig, a few things to make, you know, your shift go by. It's um, it's, it's part of nursing, man.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I would, I would love to be back, man. I I appreciate you too. I mean, like I said, you guys, you guys are freaking awesome. I appreciate what you guys are doing. We need more outlets like this. I, I, I appreciate you guys frontiering that especially as men in 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 nursing. That's, that's even more rare and 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 special. You have, you have something to say, and it's, and I'm sure people are. I mean, I remember being young. I don't know about you guys, and you know, seeing uh, very few men in nursing, and, and trying to connect and try. You know, do I have a place there? Is, is is there something there for me? And so, you guys are creating that space. So, hats off to you guys.
0: Thank you so much, Emilio, for being with us. It really hits hits the heart. Share us your Instagrams. People can follow you. Check check out check you out. Check out your ER experience.
2: Yeah, so like mercy, but mercy M U R S Y underscore M U R S Y underscore. You can catch me there. I'm just usually posting something about a little nugget I've learned from my shift, and I throw it out there. If you want to comment um, and just have a conversation about about it, I would I would love for you to come by and visit. Right, cool.
0: Thank you so much, Emilio. Thank you guys for listening. Glad glad you were here with us for this long, and make sure you give us five stars. If any five stars, do will be waste your time, man. Check out That's Emilio. All right, peace, guys.